but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law, although although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, to show, to show that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. So um, there's a few events that I think we could probably most of us would agree that, you know, there's a few significant events that are so significant in history that we remember where we were exactly when it happened. Um, JFK, when he was assassinated, I wasn't alive for that. Um, but my dad has told me many times he remembers exactly where he was when he heard that news. 9-11. I'm sure if you were alive for 9-11, you remember where you were, what you were doing when that news was delivered. Another um, piece of news that for me fits that category is the O.J. Simpson trial. The day that the verdict was announced, I have just such a crystal clear memory of where I was. I was in math class, so I remember it because it was like a relief for me for a moment to see the O.J. trial, a relief from math. And I mean, I have this vivid recall of just the shock, honestly, the shock that filled that courtroom and that filled my math class when he was pronounced not guilty. That is, that's courtroom drama, right, at its finest. Uh, this language that Paul uses here is courtroom drama kind of language. That's what the end of Romans 3 is about. And, and I hope that these verses from Romans can be for you what some of those events are for us. I hope these verses can be something that when you really begin to grasp the truth and the meaning behind them, you'll remember exactly where you were because they've had that kind of impact on your story. This is guilty and not guilty language that Paul uses here. This is acquitted or condemned language. These verses, they have to do with human standing, with human standing before God. Can I just be really clear with you, hopefully, just at the outset, when you scrape everything else in your life away, when you scrape everything else in your life away, the reality is that each one of us one day is going to face judgments. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 that it's appointed for all men to die and then to face judgment. All of us, no matter who we are, no matter where we were born, no matter our religious background, will stand before God the judge. All of us, Paul has already told us in Romans, will give an account for the things that we have done. And here's a question I want you really to consider. What are you going to say to God? What are you going to say to God when you face him? What will you present before God? There's really only one answer 
There's only one answer to that question that can satisfy God's good and just and righteous standard. And that's what we're going to look at today in Romans chapter 3. For the last four weeks, we've been going through these early chapters of Romans, and Paul has hammered us again and again and again on the gravity, the gravity of sin. He's told us that sin affects all of us. It affects all of us so much that there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to be in fellowship with God, to be friends with God. He summarizes everything he said in chapters 1, 2, and 3. In verse 23, he says, all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin, the scriptures teach us, is our great enemy. Sin has radically corrupted all of us so that we are without hope in this world, apart from God intervening, apart from God doing something. Paul said, it doesn't matter if you're religious. It doesn't matter if you're irreligious. It doesn't matter if you consider yourself to be a pretty decent, upstanding person compared to others, or if you know you're the scum of the earth. It doesn't matter. Everyone is condemned as a sinner under the righteous judgment of God. He told us in verse 18 of chapter 1, the wrath of God, the wrath of God is being revealed against this godless world, against, against us. But thankfully, that's not all that God reveals. Thankfully, there's a Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and following. Wrath isn't even the primary way in which God is revealing himself in the world. These verses tell us that God also reveals grace. You believe that? Can I get an amen from one of the former Baptists in the room? Thank you. God reveals grace. There's this amazing... <laughs> Sorry. There's this amazing transition here. In verse, I like that Kevin's laughing, man. Best staff member of the day right here, laughing at my jokes. Okay, there's this great transition in verse 21. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed. Those verses, that word is like, it's like kind of like if you've been at eight days or so in this kind of weather. Just dreary weather and it's starting to affect your mood and your emotional state. And then one day you wake up in the morning and you go outside and the sun is shining and the birds are chirping and it's beautiful. That's what Romans 3.21 is like, because it's the first time we've seen in all of Romans that God reveals a plan to redeem all things. To use Paul's language, God reveals his righteousness. The righteousness of God is being revealed. And so this next section in Romans tells us how that happens, how the righteousness of God gets to us, how the righteousness of God affects us and changes us. To use a simpler term, this is an explanation of the gospel, the good news. This might be the most important paragraph in the Bible, verses 21 through 26. It's really dense language. We're not going to be able to cover all of it, but the main concept is clear. Here's the main concept. The gospel provides a way. The gospel provides a way for the righteousness of God to be given to sinful, unrighteous humans and for God's integrity to be maintained. The gospel makes God both just and the one who justifies. We see here that our standing with God can, in fact, be altered. Our standing can change from condemned to forgiven. And this happens through what Paul calls justification. Justification is God's way of, I'm making up a word here, of righteousing the unrighteous. It's God's way of righteousing the unrighteous. Justification has been called the pillar on which the church stands or falls, and 
that's true. It's the very definition of the gospel. It's the very heart of the good news. So this morning, let's take some time, just a couple of minutes, and work through justification. Work through what Paul means when he talks about the gospel. So I want to show you three things. I want to show you how justification begins. Second, how justification works. And then third, how justification is received. Okay, so first, Paul tells us how justification is, uh, how it begins. He He reminds us there in the first couple of verses of our need for the righteousness of God. No human being will be justified by works of the law, verse 20. Again, verse 23, everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But then he says, in spite of that, the righteousness of God has been made known. Verse 21, it's not been made known through the law, even though the law pointed to it. So where does it come from? Well, Paul tells us the beginning of justification, the source of our justification comes from God himself. God gives us grace so that we can be spared his condemning just wrath. Where do we see that? Look in verse 24. Paul says we're justified by his grace as a gift. We're justified by his grace as a gift. To emphasize the idea there, Paul's repeating the idea. He's being redundant. By his grace and as a gift mean the same thing. So how is it possible for God to declare you who are unrighteous to, in fact, be righteous? How is it possible for God to declare someone who is, in fact, guilty to be innocent? It's only possible because it is sourced in his abundant grace. The origin of justification, the origin of your forgiveness, of your salvation, the origin of your right standing with God is from God's own graciousness. Justification begins with grace. You know what that means? What that means is that there is nothing that any of you can do, think, or say that will in any way predispose God to like you more than other people. (laughs) There's nothing that you can do that will predispose God to act graciously with you. Why does God justify anyone? Why would God declare you to be righteous or me to be righteous? Why would God change my status from condemned to pardoned? The answer is because God is love. God simply chose in his sovereign counsel to give a gift of grace. And that is the only reason that it happens for any of us and for all of us. Maybe you can understand this just by thinking about your life as a parent. And even if you're not a parent yet... You can understand this. Um, Oftentimes, um, when we think about uh, children and disciplining our children well, um, when your kids have been disobedient, right, Um, you can take away a privilege. You can discipline them in some way. You can give them a consequence so that maybe they don't don't get to enjoy something fun that they were going to do. And then at times, at times, you as a parent can show your kids pure unfiltered grace. You can give them something just simply as a gift. You can say, you're not going to have screens for the rest of the day. And then later in the day, irrespective of how your children have behaved, you can look at your children and realize, man, I love that kid. That kid is a moron. That kid has screwed up, but I love that kid. That kid made some really foolish choices today, but I love that kid. And you can just Give them grace. You can say, you know what? Come and be a part of the family. You can do that after all. They don't deserve it at all. If they deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. 
Grace is favor given to those who deserve the opposite. It's not just favor given to those who don't deserve favor. It's favor given to those who deserve the opposite of favor. And that's what Paul says God shows us. I want to be honest with you. Man, this week for me was just kind of a crazy week. It was really hectic, and um, it was hard for me this week for uh, the beauty of grace to just sink into my heart. It really was. Um, this week was nuts. I barely had time to get the sermon done. It's one of those moments where I'm like, oh, I just got to get this done. Romans 3.21, let's go. And uh, I, honestly, I was convicted. I was like, I, this just isn't moving me inwardly like I feel like it, it should. And, and maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you've heard this a million times. You hear me talk about grace every week, but it just doesn't move you. We need the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, will you move us at the beauty of grace? Let's just take us. You might even want to close your eyes. Very non-Presbyterian, but you might want to close your eyes. You don't have to. And let's, let's just think about this. Um, think about the last week of your life. Think about the ways that you failed. Think about words that you've spoken that were cruel or thoughtless or untrue. Think about thoughts that you've had that you wouldn't want to reveal to anyone else. And then let that play out, not just over your last week, but over an entire lifetime. And then imagine standing before God, whom the Bible says is a consuming fire, is full of blazing beauty and holiness and glory, and having to acknowledge those things. And think about the only thing that you would be sensing. It's like what Isaiah sensed when he saw God in chapter 6. He basically said, I can't stand before you, God. I'm a man of unclean lips. Get me out of here. Get me out of your presence. Here's the beauty of grace. God sees and knows all of those things in your life. He knows all of your thoughts. He knows every word you've spoken. He knows every action you've committed, even if you think it was in complete secret. God knows. And God, at the moment of reckoning, pardons you. He gives you what you don't deserve. He gives you what you have not and could not earn. He pours out grace. The truth is, that's a real possibility for every single one of you today when you stand before God at judgment. God is, in fact, that loving. Do you believe that? I mean, that seems crazy. So the question is, how can God do that? How can God do that? It begins in his grace. Let's look secondly at how justification works. We need to talk about that because if we left it here, we might have a misunderstanding about what God is like in, in the fullness of his character. We might have a problem, and the problem would be a possible mis misconception about God. And that's this, that God just sort of forgets about our sin. That God just wanna let, wants to let bygones be bygones and sweep our sin under the rug. That he's just going to pretend that the atrocities that humans have committed against one another and against him aren't really that big of a deal. As C.S. Lewis says, we might have a misconception that God is not a father, but just kind of a benevolent, senile grandfather that wants to say, at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. That's a misconception because it underestimates two things. It underestimates the gravity of sin, the heinousness of sin, and it underestimates the beautiful, immaculate justice of God. I was reading this week about a uh, some of the things that happened after uh, the school shooting in Columbine in Colorado in 1997. And uh, the Wall Street Journal had an article on that 20 years ago or so now. And, and there was a memorial service for the 
students that were tragically murdered in that horrific event in which the presiding minister with all of the press there and all kinds of people in the house, the presiding minister at this memorial service, he, he called for forgiveness for uh, the two young men who had committed the crime. And uh, Paul Greenberg, who at the time was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, was there, and he wrote an article about it. And in this article, Greenberg, who's not a Christian, wrote this. There were words of comfort Tuesday night, words of mercy and grace and forgiveness. But, he says, I don't recall hearing anything about justice. And listen to this. What meaning can mercy and grace and forgiveness have if they are separated from justice? What meaning can mercy and grace and forgiveness have if they're separated from justice? That, that's a very biblical instinct. Because it's telling us that God is not good if he just sweeps sin under the rug. And so the question becomes, how is it possible for the righteous God to declare the unrighteous to be righteous without either compromising his righteousness or condoning their unrighteousness? I know that's a mouthful. It's on the screen. You can read it again. That's the question. And God's answer is the cross. The cross. At the death of Jesus Christ, God is, Paul says, just and the justifier. So we need to see the mechanics of justification. We need to, uh, just for a minute, take it apart and uh, look at how it works. And the best way to do that is to look at two really crucial words that Paul uses in these verses that help us understand what justification is. They help us understand what happened at the cross so that God can both maintain his integrity and pardon ungodly people. Two words. The first word is redemption. Look in verse 24 again. Paul says, we're justified by his grace as a gift. We talked about that through or by means of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In the death of Jesus, Paul is saying, God redeems us. Now, that's a commercial term borrowed from the marketplace, just like justification is a legal term borrowed from the courtroom. And what that word means is to buy back or to set free. And so the idea is that Jesus, in his death on the cross, buys us out of our bondage, out of our slavery to sin, our great enemy. So justification happens, it works by means of Jesus redeeming us. Jesus told his disciples, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom, a redemption price for many. So redemption highlights the cost, the cost of salvation. Listen, here's what it means. It means that your predicament is so dire and my predicament is so dire that um, <clears throat> it can't be remedied in any ordinary way. Dealing with sin required the redemption price of the blood of God, the blood of Jesus. The cost of redemption is the life of God himself. In the death of Jesus, we see God suffering the consequences of sins that have been committed against him. That makes sense to us because I think all of us, if we really kind of think about this, we all long for some sort of payment when there has been a grievance against us, don't we? We all want 
We all want justice when there's been a grievance against us. I was reading another article this week about um, the wars in the country of Argentina in the late 1970s. They called them the Dirty War and uh, the Dirty Wars. And uh, in this war, thousands of people were taken as political prisoners. And um, as the war was nearing its end, what some of the insurgents would do is they would take these political prisoners and they would get them in an airplane and they would fly them out over the Atlantic. And then they would throw them all out of the airplane, plummeting them to their deaths. And uh, in the article I was reading, a, a woman was being interviewed whose mother was killed by just that means in Argentina. And uh, she's quoted as saying, the last time I saw my mother was when I was seven, and I'll never see her again. And then she said this, someone must pay for my pain. Someone must pay for my pain. That just makes sense, doesn't it? We all want someone to pay for that kind of horror, for that kind of pain. And that's what redemption is saying. Redemption means that God has offered payments. He's offered payment for the sin the pain caused by sin in this world, and the payment that he offered is himself. The life of Jesus is the only life worth enough to pay off the debt of sin, to liberate us from sin's bondage. So justification, our being righteous, even though we're unrighteous, is possible because Jesus offers himself freely as our redeemer. That's the first word. The second word is another word Paul uses in verse 25. The word is propitiation. Let's go back to the text. We're justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, some of your translations might say, sacrifice of atonement. Some of your translations might say propitiation, as a propitiation by his blood. That word there, propitiation, is a word that's used regularly in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word is used to refer to what's called the mercy seat. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might know what that is. That refers to the golden lid of the Ark of the Covenant, where in ancient Israel, uh, sacrificial blood would be sprinkled on the Day of Atonement one time a year. And the Israelites did that to satisfy, to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. So what verse 25 means, what Paul is saying, is that God offered Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. God offered Jesus as a once-for-all offering to satisfy his own wrath and anger against human rebellion. Maybe it'll be helpful to think about it this way. Because of God's perfect justice, every sin ever committed is going to be punished. Every sin ever committed is going to be punished. And there are two possible ways in which sin will be punished. Sin is either going to be punished upon you in hell, or sin is going to be punished upon Jesus at the cross. What Paul is saying here is that God punishes our sin in the death of someone else, of Jesus. So the cross means that Jesus is taking everything on himself that our sins deserve so that we can be spared eternal death, eternal separation. Jesus had no guilt. Jesus had no sin. But he bore the penalty as a propitiation for our sin and our guilt. That's why John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb. 
the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Listen, Jesus was not sweating blood in the garden because he had to endure crucifixion. Jesus was not sweating blood in the garden because he had to endure crucifixion. A lot of people were crucified. Jesus wasn't saying, Father, can this pass from me because he was going to be nailed to a wooden cross by Roman soldiers. He was sweating blood in the garden because he was bearing at the cross the infinite, holy, righteous anger of a good God against human sin. God did not turn away from the cross because of what he saw soldiers doing to Jesus' body. That's not why God turned away from the cross. He turned away from the cross because he saw Jesus bearing the pain and the agony of your sin and of my sin in all of its ugliness and in all of its wickedness, and God couldn't bear to look at it. The cross is not primarily about the physical agony Jesus endured. The cross primarily is about the spiritual hell that Jesus endured there for us. The cross means that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his son so that by his blood, God will make provision for the removal of his wrath. That's how the cross shows God to be both just and the justifier. The cross is the great demonstration of God's perfect justice because their sin is dealt with once and for all, right? But the cross at the same time, in a masterstroke, is the great demonstration of God's forgiving love in that there he pardons sinners once for all. Both of those things happen through Jesus' redeeming, propitiating death. So just one big conclusion to draw here. One big conclusion. God has done already everything that is needed for your salvation. God has done everything necessary for you to have again right standing with him. The cross is enough. The cross is enough. It is enough to change your standing before God. It's enough to end sin's dominion in your life. The cross is enough to alter your eternal destiny. It's enough to banish the power and the influence of the evil one. The cross is enough to bring you a new family and to give you a new identity. The cross is enough. Jesus really has paid it all. Fanny Crosby was right. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing left to be done. It is finished means it is finished. That's how justification works. It begins with God's grace. It works through the redeeming, propitiating death of Jesus. Last point real quick. How is justification received? God has initiated justification by his grace. It's been accomplished through Jesus in his death. So how does what Jesus did at the cross get to me now? How does Jesus' redemption impact my current experience? How can we receive the benefits of Jesus' death? These verses make it really, really clear. I mean really clear. By faith. And by faith alone. Verse 22. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says it again. For all who believe. Verse 25. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Verse 26. God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Faith is the means. It's the avenue. It's the road 
by which we receive the grace of God given to us in the cross of Jesus. So what does it mean for you to have faith? Let me close with this. What does it mean for you to have faith? Faith means you're not relying on works, for one, right? It means that when you stand before God on the judgment day, you're not going to present to him anything that you have done, said, or believed, other than trust in Jesus. So faith is the opposite of works. Faith also, Paul's clear here, is in Jesus. Faith in Christ alone specifically, not just kind of this general nebulous faith in God. President Dwight Eisenhower uh, was quoted as saying years ago about America, we're founded on a deeply felt religious faith and I don't care what kind it is. That's very American, by the way. It sounds very much like America. That's not the kind of faith Paul's talking about. Christian faith is faith in a specific person, in a specific object. It's faith in Jesus in his atoning work for you on the cross. And then the last thing it means for you to have faith. You're not relying on works. You're believing in Jesus specifically. And, and you need to get that faith is, a, faith is a receptor. What does it mean to have faith? It doesn't mean that you've achieved some sort of moral attainment. It, faith is not like another kind of work. Faith is transferring your trust. It's transferring your, your reliance from yourself to Jesus. It's transferring your reliance for right standing with God from yourself to Jesus. It's, it's merely receiving. It's embracing everything that Jesus is for you in the gospel and everything that Jesus has done for you in the cross. Listen to uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Here's what he says. The man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not even look at what he hopes to be as the result of his own efforts. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. And he rests on that alone. He has ceased to say, ah, yes, I've committed terrible sins, but I've done this and that. He stopped saying that. If he goes on saying that, he has not got faith. Faith speaks in an entirely different manner and makes a man say, yes, I've sinned grievously. I've lived a life of sin, yet I know that I am a child of God because I'm not resting on any righteousness of my own. My righteousness is in Jesus Christ and God has put that to my accounts. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is available for you right now. Right standing with God is available for you right now. All that's required is a reliance, a trust, a falling into the arms freely of Jesus. Have you done that? That's the answer to the question that I asked at the beginning. What are you going to say to God when you stand before him? The only answer you can give is Jesus is my righteousness. Let's pray.